12 months ago was when we first started seeing bedraggled people totally traumatized by the appalling violence which they'd been subject to back in Myanmar. People are starting to adjust to the reality that this is a more long-term solution. You're listening to The Lid Is On from UN News. How do you run one of the biggest refugee camps on the planet? That's the task facing UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund, one of several international agencies which are helping hundreds of thousands of mainly Rohingya Muslims in a place called Cox's Bazar in southern Bangladesh. They fled their homes in Myanmar's Rakhine state and sought shelter in Bangladesh following a military clearance operation 12 months ago that's been likened to a textbook example of ethnic cleansing by former UN human rights chief Zaidrad al-Hussein. In this episode of our Lid is On podcast, Daniel Johnson from UN News speaks to UNICEF's Simon Ingram, who recalls the hell on earth he found last August and what's been done to help youngsters since then, despite massive ongoing challenges. One year ago, we spoke about the situation of the Rohingya children in southern Bangladesh as being one of hell on earth. And I think there was every reason to term it in that rather dramatic way. The chaos and the uh, panic that one saw among these vast streams of people coming across the border from Myanmar was something quite extreme and quite extraordinary, something I've certainly never experienced And I think it's a good place to start there, really, one year ago, because the situation 12 months on is different. It has changed. And in some respects, at least on the surface, and substantively in terms of the programs that have been been rolled out, things are a lot more reassuring. The situation is more structured. There is better infrastructure on the ground, be it roads or trails through the camps, be it the services that are on offer, be it the amount of water and sanitation which is available. You see evidence of the extraordinary work led by the government of Bangladesh and working alongside a vast range of humanitarian organizations of which UNICEF is one, the immense impact that that has had. Can I just interrupt there? You're there a lot. You are in Cox's Bazaar, the area of the refugee camps where the exodus happened. People headed there. They were housed there on hillsides. Hillsides are being cleared now. Can you maybe just set the scene for us? Describe what you see as you step out into Cox's Bazaar. What do you see? What's the first thing? 12 months ago was when we first started seeing streams of bedraggled people coming across, clutching no more than a few possessions, staring ahead of them, fearful and totally traumatized by the appalling violence which they'd been subject to back in Myanmar. These were people in the last stages of desperation who were just sitting beside the road, helplessly waiting for someone to come and give them something. I mean, it was indescribable, the suffering that one saw on the faces of these people, and especially on the children, of course, who were just caught up in this monumental uh, humanitarian disaster. So to contrast that to today, and what you see is it's a busy, bustling, community. It's a vast camp encampment which has been set up. Uh, To some extent it it has happened naturally but increasingly it's being done in a more planned and methodical way as some of the areas which were initially settled and that were turned out to be not safe have had to be you know replaced and, and people have been moved into areas where the land is flatter and where it's easier to get the resources and the infrastructure in place be it water or toilets or sanitation or whatever. So we're seeing this 
transformation has really gathered pace, I would say, in the past six months or so. And I think there is no doubt that this has had a calming effect on people, that you see less obvious signs of tension and anger. The scenes at the food and supply distributions is more orderly. People are starting to adjust to the reality that this is a more long-term solution. So people are starting to adjust, and maybe it's worth emphasising that UNICEF is telling the international community this is potentially a long-term problem. Let's talk about the children then in Cox's Bazaar at the moment. What are they telling you? You, you say that they're desperate for education. Even in some cases, it's more important than food. It's something that you, you comes across so clearly when you visit the learning centres. There's something like 1,200 of them that have been set up now. And you see the children in there packed. Of course, there's no classroom furniture. They squat on the floor with their bag in front of them with their paper. And uh, the teacher has a blackboard in most cases. Um, and it's just the, the energy that you sense in these classrooms that children bring and their desire to learn. And it's infectious. You can't help but be swept up in it. So this is an enormous enormously important contribution that's been made and has definitely had an impact in terms of allowing these children to settle, to develop a routine and to absorb to some extent and to deal with some of the worst trauma that they brought with them from their experiences fleeing Myanmar. So this is an enormous step forward. But what we're saying now is that we need to go beyond this. We need to think about the future. We need to deal with the fact that the learning which we've been able to provide up till now has been very much of an informal kind, using a whole range of different materials produced by different groups. There hasn't been a great deal of structure to it. The focus, the determination was get these kids into a classroom where they will be safe, number one, and where they have certain organized activities and where some levels of basic learning can go on. And that has been achieved. Now, we have to realize, we have to accept that, at least for the foreseeable future, that this is not a situation which is going to end anytime immediately, that the conditions on the ground are not going to allow for the rapid return of refugees. We wish that it would, but in all reality, in all truth, we just don't see that happening. Therefore, we have to come up with a more sustainable solution to the education offer or provision of education, one which allows children to acquire basic life skills and the essential learning that they need that is part of an education. It's not informal, that allows them to grasp basic skills in language, in literacy, reading and writing, and in, in mathematics and in science as well. So that is what we're now focusing on. A great deal of effort has been going into this, preparing a new curriculum, which we are looking to roll out imminently, certainly at the lower levels, and which will eventually deal with the needs of older children as well, which is an area which has been lacking up till now because we've had to, to say focus you've on. been finding that it's older children who are crying out for education 14 and over well, I would say that it goes across the board. Children want to learn full stop, you know, whatever ages, but the ones who we've not been able to provide anything for largely and certainly in a formal learning sense has been the adolescents from age 14 and up and these children are absolutely to put it too strongly but their their frustration is building palpably and it comes across in every conversation you have with them you know they simply want to learn they realize their lives are being frittered away you know they're wasting the potential learning years of their life and that's something they're desperate to avoid in fact, you say that it's very dangerous for their futures and for the future of the Rohingya people, a potential loss of a generation. So what are your greatest fears for these children if they don't get the help they need? 
Well, I think it's the personal one, the unfulfilled personal potential that, that each of them have, that they're simply not being given the tools with which to develop their brains and their ability to, to make a future for themselves. But it's also the loss to their community going forward, the fact that you're going to see a whole generation of children who are incapable of providing the human resources necessary to build a community. So, you know, in terms of when they do eventually go back to Myanmar, they will be called on, they will be required to contribute, to be part of the rebuilding exercise back in their communities. But they need certain skills to do that. And now is the time to be acquiring them and they risk losing out on that opportunity. Let's talk quickly about the engagement you have with the government of Myanmar. Now, a memorandum of understanding was signed between the United Nations and the government, and indeed the government of Bangladesh back in uh, June, to create conditions that were conducive to a return, a safe and voluntary return for Myanmar refugees. So can you tell us, is it a safe place for people to return to? We're talking about Rakhine State, where the exodus happened, mm -hmm. and in fact, to the north of that state. Well, the situation in northern Rakhine state is extremely worrying and it's no less worrying from the fact that we find it so difficult to have regular systematic access to communities whose needs are we know are extreme a population of well over half a million and something like 360,000 children who we know are requiring basic humanitarian assistance, be it in food and shelter, health care and education as well. So we know that the need is there, but because our ability to access the communities and find out the situation really in a more granular way on the ground, this has been incredibly difficult to achieve. Only this week we've seen comments made by the UN resident coordinator in Yangon saying exactly the same thing, that we're just not getting the level of access that we need inside northern Rakhine in order to be able to judge the situation for ourselves and to, you know, really see what is the way forward and to get our activities and our programs working again. So that's extremely worrying. At the same time, we have the situation in central Rakhine where we have something like, I think, 120,000 Rohingya living in IDP camps, which are extremely basic, very, very substandard accommodation where basically people are confined and where they are not able to access health care or education or just about anything, let alone livelihoods. These are camps that were set up following previous conflict that's in right. 2012. That's right. It was intercommunal violence that took place in 2012, which led to the departure, the movement of a large number of uh, Rohingya from their communities in Sitwe and other townships, and they are now in these camps. Camps which the Myanmar government has agreed to close down, and uh, the UN has requested that, and it was certainly one of the recommendations of the Advisory Committee on Rakhine State, headed by the late former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, which has called for these camps to be closed and for people to be allowed to return to their own communities. So that has not moved, has not changed. And the situation, as I say, remains extremely troubling in, in right across uh, Rakhine State. So obviously there's concern about the ongoing situation for those left in Rakhine State in Myanmar. But let's return quickly then to the camps in Bangladesh, in southern Bangladesh, where there's an interesting programme that UNICEF is supporting involving local radio. And the aim is to 
communicate important messages to people to help with their education and with their development and indeed with healthcare. Can you tell me a bit about this and how it fulfills a really important role? It sort of fills a void, if you like, that needs to be satisfied among those who are in the camps and wondering about their future. I think it's one of the biggest challenges, actually. It's not one that you sense immediately or imagine immediately, but it is that simply that of communicating in making sure that people living in a vast space making sure that people understand what is happening in their lives, you know, what changes are happening, where new infrastructure is being put in, what services are available, where they can go to find health care, where they can go to take their child to a learning space. All of these sorts of uh, information basically has to be provided by word of mouth because there's no, there's no really no other way short of a man going around with a bullhorn, which is used, by the way. It does happen. I've seen it happen for promoting vaccination campaigns and so on. And you've also sponsored residents of the camp to go around and help encourage pregnant women to go and get health care and, and mm. find a midwife and also to spread important messages along the lines of vaccinations are safe and they won't make you sterile. It is amazing the kind of messages that need to be broadcast, but it does sound like uh, this is one initiative that has some positive results. It's essential. One of the biggest battles that we've had is dealing with the rumour mill, because in a situation where there's no access to TV or radio or internet, let alone newspapers, people are really are you know vulnerable and just exposed to whatever they hear from their neighbour and whatever misinformation that they may have picked up. And because there is a lot that these the Rohingya are familiar with. Immunization was virtually unknown back in, uh, in Myanmar. This is a population which is largely unimmunized, which is something quite remarkable in this day and age, certainly in, in Asia, where immunization levels are generally very high. So it was understandable that when they were presented with, you know, a man with a needle about to jab it into their daughter or son's arm, they might well have questions about what exactly is going on and what is the benefit. So it was probably only to be expected that there were, yes, indeed, some some people who um, sp were spreading some, some crazy stories about what was likely to happen if they went ahead with a jab. So that this has been one of the ways in which we've been trying to deal with this, um, working with community radio stations, of which uh, there are now several working down in, in the southern end of Cox's Bazaar, and who are, if not directly We've had a radio, there's been a radio distribution of, of radio sets taking place, several thousand are already out there, maybe more. And if, because there's a challenge with community radio, the signal is not easily received in some parts of the camp, because it's very hilly. Therefore, what they do is the radio set is taken with a USB stick of the program, and it's taken by a youth, a kid, typically, and they organize uh, people to gather around and listen to the radio program, so that then they can talk about the information, the program and announcements that are made and get the information out that way. So, you know, it's a question of being inventive, being creative in terms of finding a way of addressing what is actually a very, very important question. Because if things start to go wrong and if the wrong sorts of information gets out, it can have very real, very, very negative impact on the way people behave. You can imagine the sorts of bad things that can happen as a yeah, result. It's, it's good to nip it in the bud. And communication, we've seen it in the Ebola outbreak, for example, in DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They've used local radio to spread the word that, in fact, when people ask about where your relatives are and which contacts you've had, they're just trying to help people protect them from this deadly disease. Final question to you, Simon Ingram from UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund. Uh, before you head back into Bangladesh tomorrow, I believe, to the refugees from Myanmar, you obviously need money for all of this. How much money do you need? Funding, I think, is only at about 50%. And presumably you also want, really, the solution to come from the government of Myanmar itself. Funding is always an issue, and I think we've seen that 
you know, while the response in, in the initial stages was well covered, and I think that was because this was a crisis that was very dramatic, it touched a lot of people, and I think that we saw that in the encouraging phase of the response. But that has started to ebb. We've seen a, a drop in the amount of attention, media attention around the crisis, and that has certainly had an impact to the extent that as far as uh, UNICEF's concerned, our appeal for 2018 is something like two-thirds unfilled. So that's a cause of real concern. And we hope very much that as a result of this report that we will manage to raise the warning flag and encourage donors to step forward, particularly in the area of education, which is an area which can sometimes be sort of pushed to the background because it isn't seen as being a sort of life-saving in the same way as clean water or healthcare is. But actually, we would argue it's just as vital, it's just as critical for the futures of these young people. And of course, in the longer term, we all understand that there is a political message as well, one which has to be addressed by the government of Myanmar. They have the capacity and the ability and responsibility to coming up with creating conditions on the ground in Rakhine State that would allow the Rohingya people to return and to fulfill the rights that will enable them to remain and to resume their lives inside Myanmar. That's a responsibility and something that we call on the Myanmar government to accomplish as soon as possible. Simon Ingram from UNICEF, many thanks and safe trip back and do keep us informed of developments there on the ground. Thank you very much. UNICEF's Simon Ingram was speaking to Daniel Johnson from UN News for this edition of our podcast, The Lid Is On. <laughs>